It's my great pleasure to introduce Ed Begley Jr. Thank you very much for that nice introduction. Thank you Skylight Books for getting such a great turnout and Food and Water Watch, both of you together getting this great turnout. I go to a lot of these wonderful events, but uh, this is good. It's good to see so many people that care about our food and water. I would hope uh, many more people would care about it, and I think deep down they do. We just have to reach them. And there's a great organization that's helping reach out to people, and that is Food and Water, water Watch. Whether it's at Porter Ranch with the disaster there, informing people what's going on and how we can take steps to make a change. They've been instrumental with that. Uh, whatever the, the challenge is with fracking, letting us know what's going on with fracking in different parts of LA and the state and the nation. Uh, they've been instrumental in getting the proper information and where the, uh, the levers of power are where we can affect a change and try to make a difference in policy and indeed in action. But I want to talk specifically not just about Food and Water Watch, but about one individual, wonderful Winona Howder. Big hand, please. There's many reasons to like, love, and admire Winona Howder, not the least of which is she is in fact a farmer. She has a working farm in Virginia, don't you? I'm a gentleman farmer in, uh, in Studio City. You know, I've got my... My little urban farm, and nothing wrong with that, but she has a uh, much larger and better working farm, and so she knows very well how to grow food and what's involved in the circle of life that we all depend on, that some people are derisive of and think problems can be solved with genetic engineering and substances that uh, will do the job quickly but have long-term uh, long costs and uh, she's been great in talking about that. Her other book, Foodopoly, I hope other people have read Foodopoly. I have a big hand for Foodopoly if you've read that. Get that, do they have Foodopoly here too, by the way? Yes. Good, very good, another wonderful book to get, but we're here today to talk about Fracopoly, about the challenges, and indeed the incredible costs involved with fracking, hydraulic fracturing, and uh, They've been doing a form of fracturing for a while, but now the way they do with the kind of chemicals that they use and the amount of water that they use and the damage to the ecosystem and the damage to nearby communities, we're just creating wasteland throughout the country in Dish, Texas, in Rifle, Colorado, uh, places, uh, Dimmick, Pennsylvania, places all over the country have first-hand information about how bad it is, and Josh Fox has done a wonderful documentary about it called Gasland and uh, subsequent movies about it. But the work on the ground is being done by Food and Water Watch, and specifically by Winona Howder, and she is a hero of mine. She has done an incredible job with this book. It's a terrific book, and it really lays things out in scientific terms and historical terms. You're going to hear a lot more about it, so I'm going to stop with all my chin music and get to the important part of this day, which is hearing from the incredible Winona Howder. Winona. Thanks so much for coming today. You know, we're all in this together and there are literally thousands and thousands of grassroots activists across the country really working in their community and at the state level to do something about extreme energy. And I'm really pleased that I'll be joined by Sandy and Matt to talk about the local issues going on related to drilling and uh, the Porter Ranch disaster. So, if we want to know where we, we're going, we have to know where we've been, right? And that's kind of why I wrote Fracopoly. You know, since 2012, 
80% of fracking has been for oil. But the oil and gas industry are depending on drilling and fracking for natural gas for their profits in the future. And gas, of course, is methane, and methane is a much more potent gas than carbon. In fact, almost 100 times more potent in the first 20 years after it's emitted. And that means that because we should be doing something about climate change in the next 10 to 15 years that we need to get off of natural gas and we need to be talking about it and demanding public policy changes. second reason I wrote this book is because of all of the frontline communities across the country, like you have here in LA with the, the drilling, uh, but across the country in 30 states, we see frontline communities being abused by the oil and gas industry. And Kim's um, had to take a loss on her house because once there's drilling next to where you live, drilling and fracking. Nobody wants to live there. So she just took and left the house that she'd purchased to protect her daughter. And the third reason I wrote Fracopoly, and um, oh good, it shows up better there than it does here, uh, is because in the mid-1990s, I worked on a renewable energy project called Powering the Midwest. And at that time, we said that renewables were ready, and they were. They were already very cost uh, effective. But here we are, almost 30 years later, and this is the sad story at the end of 2015. Geothermal, solar, and wind are 5.5% percent of our electricity mix, 12 percent here in California, but this is shocking to me, and yet we hear that the solution to climate change is to make everything electric. So that's really why I want to talk about natural gas and where we're going in the future, because we can't um, use natural gas as a bridge fuel. And this is just another way of looking at it. But decisions were made, and I'm going to talk about the deregulation that's taken place. Decisions were made to get rid of coal and to let natural gas replace it. And you can see that for the first time in 2015 uh, that coal is going down and gas is rising to meet it. And that is the plan unless we organize and put a stop to it. So I know some people, maybe a few of you aren't familiar with fracking, so I just thought I'm going to talk about fracking, but really fracopoly, the first part of it, is a history of the oil and gas industry. And I know that there's drilling, conventional drilling going on here in LA. Our position is we should be keeping it all on the ground. Just to talk a little bit about what fracking is, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a, a science fiction-like process where large amounts of water, an array of toxic chemicals, and very fine sand are uh, 
injected very deep underground under very high pressure to recover oil and gas. And a lot of different problems happen as a result of this. We really don't know what's going on a mile or two underground. And in a lot of places, the vertical well is drilled up to two miles. And then the horizontal tunnel goes another two miles. The fracking takes place under uh, extremely high pressure in multiple stages. And uh, that's uh, the root of of many of the problems. This is what a big fracking operation looks like in a place like North Dakota. This is fracking in West Texas. Just to give you a sense of the number of wells, there have been 140 wells drilled and fracked since 2005. And the oil and gas industry and the U.S. government project that there will be 650 to 700 well, 700,000 wells drilled in the ne- in the coming decades, and it's going to be our job to stop this. One of the uh, impacts is each well takes about a thousand large truckloads of materials to um, get the, drill, the, the well up and running. So there are a lot of impacts, lots of local impacts that we're not going to have time to go into, but in rural areas it really industrializes uh, these places, ruins the infrastructure, brings in a lot of um, young uh, oil and gas rednecks, changes the uh, uh, the culture in the community. And this is a, a fracking activist's home in Wyoming. This is not fog. This is the pollution that takes place from drilling and fracking. And in fact, uh, in Wyoming, uh, the air now rivals LA's on the worst days here in LA. I mean, pretty shocking. And the other big problem with the um, fracking industry is it takes a lot of water. So 50 times more than conventional drilling on average and that's about 1.7 billion or million gallons rather per well on average. But some parts of the country need a lot more um, water to actually drill. So for instance, some parts of Texas, dry Texas, are using 13 million gallons per well. So that means that there is a lot of toxic wastewater. And the oil and gas industry has a lot of wastewater, even for conventional drilling. And that wastewater is one of the problems. Of course, there's also the problem of aquifers uh, being uh, drilled into. We've seen that in places like Wyoming, the methane coming through people's faucets. Um, The oil and gas industry takes a lot of shortcuts. They just consider it the cost of doing business. They consider worker deaths the cost of doing business, and it's a very dangerous industry to work in. But getting back to the wastewater, you know, what to do with this wastewater is a major problem. So sometimes, this is Colorado, there are big uh, evaporation ponds where the water is evaporated and then you're left with a lot of very toxic gunk that has to be hauled off and dealt with in some way. 
another way that it's dealt with is through deep well injection. It's actually injected very, very deep into the earth. And the oil and gas industry has been doing this for a while, but now they're doing it very intensely because of the large amount of fracking wastewater and all of the drilling that's going on. So here's a road that's been destroyed in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a good example of where this is being done. They used to have one to three, three magnitude earthquakes a year. Now they're having um, 5,000 or more. I mean, more than California. And this is happening in other states too, Arkansas, Ohio, uh, parts of Kentucky, where this deep well injection is taking place. And then uh, many of you, probably most of you know that uh, uh, the drilling in Kern County and uh, a similar technique is being used, although there may be some fracking going on there, but they, they frack with steam. Chevron has a lot of wastewater. The LA Times has written about it. And that wastewater is being used in some cases to irrigate crops. So here are some of the names of the crops, and I know that there's going to be a, a, a coalition effort this year to really put an end to that in the state of California. I mean, this is a really horrible more of the brands. So there are a lot of other impacts with fracking. Uh, all of the pipelines, all of the liquefied natural gas plants, uh, all of this infrastructure. And what's really shocking is that the financial services industry is deep into this. In fact, Goldman Sachs is now one of the largest owners of the actual commodity of natural gas, and they are making long-term contracts. We also have the financial services industry, the big out-of-control banks, making a lot of loans for fracking, for the oil and gas industry, and $200 billion in loans just for the infrastructure. Now, do you think that they believe that we're going to have a quick transition to renewables? Or do you think they're funding this infrastructure for another 40 years? I mean, I think that is where the truth really lies. Uh, another impact that isn't discussed a whole lot is for fracking, very fine white sand is used. And that means that a lot of sand has to be mined. And that kind of silica sand is found in Illinois, um, Wisconsin, Minnesota, parts of Iowa. This is what a silica mine looks like. And there is a whole movement against silica mining as well. And in fact, the communities are really threatened uh, because if you breathe the silica dust, you can get silicosis, a, a very dangerous lung disease. And then there are all of the horrible accidents like the oil bomb trains. So that's um, just a few of the impacts of fracking. 
I want to turn now to what the first part of Fractopoly is about, which is how the oil and gas industry actually got positioned this way. Why do they get to run the U.S. government? In fact, uh, a lot of governments uh, around the world. And I always like to point out, and this is the opoly part of the book, is that uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, no matter what you think of him, he uh, believed that freedom from monopoly should have been written in the Bill of Rights. And uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was uh, a supporter of the banks, thought that um, it wouldn't be a good idea and there was a big fight about this. So over the history of our country, this has been an issue many, many times, the fight over monopoly power. And I can tell you Thomas Jefferson wasn't worried about consumer prices. He was worried about the political power that comes when a uh, commercial operation gets so large that they control an industry. And that's kind of the story of the oil and gas industry. So, you know, some of us were chatting about the election um, before the uh, uh, event started. And um, we were saying that, well, you know, people are getting their information from Fox News, right, uh, um, about a lot of issues. And uh, this is a, a uh, representation of the interlocking boards of directors for a lot of the industries involved with oil and gas. And this is really true with all industries. There are interlocking boards of directors so that these very dominant industries um, have a stake in everybody else's business. And I think one of the most dramatic ones, you know, we may not be too surprised that the electric utilities are in bed with um, the oil and gas industry or even that finance is in bed with them. But let's think about what's happened to the media. Since 1984, when the consolidation of the media began, in 84 we had 50 large media companies. Today we have six. And that is a big problem with where we are today. And uh, one worth thinking about and how we're going to get the, uh, uh, the issues out and why it's so important that we have podcasts and uh, all of the uh, social media and all of the different ways that we can reach people. So I'm going to kind of start in the beginning and whiz through this history. You'll get a taste for it. So many of us learned about John D. Rockefeller in our high school history classes. We probably weren't paying a whole lot of attention. But uh, he'd rolled up the oil industry uh, by 1890, controlled 90% of it. Oil was important in those days. Everybody needed it because it was purified into kerosene, and that was people's lighting. So if you wanted to light your house, you had to be able to buy kerosene at a reasonable price. And Rockefeller had run all of his competitors out of business, and uh, 
charged very high prices, and people were mad. This is the humor magazine Puck in 2000 and, or 19,004, and uh, they were making fun of the standard oil trust empire that belonged to Rockefeller. You can see the tentacles are around the, uh, the U.S. Capitol and a state capitol. I actually think that's the California state capitol. Um, but... Um, so there was a lot of muckraking and a lot of pressure on Teddy Roosevelt's administration to do something about Standard Oil Trust. So we also learned in history class that Roosevelt uh, sued the um, Standard Oil Trust and then it was broken up and that's about the end of the story we heard in uh, you know that week of history class in high school but the details are very important about that because Standard Oil was allowed to write its own plan so uh, J.D. Rockefeller maintained an interest in all of the uh, baby standards originally there were 30 of them, and the other directors of Standard um, met JD for lunch every day in Manhattan. And within a year, uh, Rockefeller's profits had gone up 20%. And it's important to realize that uh, Exxon, and from here on out, um, these, all of these companies have gone through all sorts of mergers and acquisitions and lots of names, calling them their modern names. So, um, Standard of New Jersey got half of the original standards value, and that was the company that became Exxon. Standard of New York was Mobile. Some of you are old enough to remember Mobile that merged with Exxon in uh, uh, the 90s under the Clinton administration. And then Standard of California, Chevron. These are just a few of the baby standards, the largest ones. And uh, the other babies either went out of business or were absorbed by these seven companies. Now, it's important to know about the seven sisters because Gulf, Texaco, BP, and Shell were companies that also began around the turn of the 19th, or the 20th century rather. So they all got into business. They each have villains like J.D. Rockefeller, lots of interesting stories. We don't have time to get into that. But these are the seven companies that had uh, all aspects of producing oil and gas. So they drilled for it, they transported it, they had tankers, uh, they had a way to distribute it, they had refineries, they had gas stations. There are a lot of other oil companies, and of course there are other fracking companies today. But these are the majors, the most powerful companies. They were called the Seven Sisters. Um, if you um, know anything about Greek mythology, Atlas had seven daughters. They fought viciously, hated each other, but when one of them was attacked, they all came around and protected her. And that is the story of the seven sisters. So this is just, uh, I know this is too small to see here, but it just gives you a sense of some of the mergers and acquisitions that took place uh, to make these companies 
the four majors today, Shell, Exxon, BP, and uh, your lovely California oil company, Chevron. So the Seven Sisters have had a lot of impacts, but I want to spend a few minutes on uh, the impacts they've had on foreign policy because a lot of decisions were made a long time ago that still reverberate today. So after, or actually it was during World War I, Britain and France realized that they were going to beat the Ottoman Empire and that it would be broken up and they wanted to have spheres of influence. So they got together and redrew the map and called it the Middle East, redrew the lines, created these countries, and then decided who would be most influential in these countries. So that's a little bit of the background about how the oil companies got into this because it wasn't too long until the U.S. got in on that deal too since the U.S. came in and was very involved in uh, winning World War I. So in 1928, when oil was discovered in Iraq, the big majors, the Seven Sisters, got together and had a seek, one of their secret meetings. And this has all uh, been verified, come out in federal testimony, been written about, but it just never gets on the front page of uh, uh, the mainstream media. They just, one of the decisions they made, because they didn't trust one another, is that overproduction had been such a problem. Uh, you know, just like we have overproduction today, right? That's the history of the oil and gas industry. Boom, bust, boom, bust. So they wanted to try to prevent the bust of prices. So they decided that they would always work together when they went in and had a concession with one of these foreign nations. You know, so they could watch one another, basically. Uh, the other thing that was really remarkable to me, and I read several books about this, is it's pretty well understood that the State Department let the oil industry, the U.S. oil industry, run one aspect of um, federal foreign policy in the Middle East. Now, shortly after that secret meeting, there was another secret meeting. This is in 1928. And these are the heads of the three largest of the uh, international major oil companies, the Seven Sisters. Uh, so we're talking about today Exxon, um, Shell, and BP. They met at a castle in Scotland to come up for, with an agreement for how they were going to operate in the future to fix prices, to stop overproduction, and how they were going to relate with the other oil and gas independent companies. And uh, they did this, and uh, they met several times up until World War II. After that, they had slicker ways of, uh, of doing this. And they eventually brought the, uh, the other, some of the other oil and gas companies into what was actually a written agreement uh, about fixing prices and uh, making themselves even more powerful because the independents had to deal with them to sell their product. So um, 
pretty interesting uh, history. Okay, so we've been talking about the oil and gas industry, and I want to just shift a minute because if you're talking about natural gas, the history of electric and gas utilities is also very important, especially if you care about what's happened at Porter Ranch, about fracking, and how powerful uh, companies, whether it's Sempra or Edison International, how did they get to be so powerful and really merge their interests with oil and gas. So uh, this was uh, Samuel Insull. Um, he worked with Thomas Edison in creating the modern uh, electric system. He was also kind of a uh, uh, shyster. He uh, actually um, ended up with an empire of gas and electric companies, about 5,000 around the country. And he wasn't happy with uh, having uh, that empire and uh, kind of ripping off consumers uh, because part of there was a lot of anger about um, natural gas in particular and electricity being very expensive in the locations that had it. So he also established a bunch of investment companies. So the investment companies sold shares of the 5,000 uh, utilities, watering it down. This led in part, this kind of behavior, it was more widespread. I'm picking on Insul and his uh, um, Common, uh, Commonwealth Edison. That is kind of the uh, uh, what it turned into. Anyway, he was ruined after the stock market crash in 1929. By 32, his empire had crashed. The 5,000 utilities had failed. So, you know, people for a while didn't have energy services. And 600,000 investors lost their shirt. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Haven't we uh, deregulated and allowed a lot of this similar behavior to happen recently? So we know Roosevelt came into office. There were a lot of reforms that needed to be made, including reforming the financial services industry, regulating it. But one of the industries that he decided to regulate was um, the uh, electric industry and the gas industry. So we don't have time to get into all these battles, but they're fascinating. This Public Utility Holding Company Act uh, ended up only being focused on electric companies. It was the most controversial bill before World War II. It took... Um, there were 600 lobbyists in Washington. It was a 200-day debate over um, uh, this, the, the behavior of the electric industry. They, they knocked the gas industry out of it. And the holding company was a structure very similar to the trust that um, uh, J.D. Rockefeller had, and very similar, now we call them multinational uh, corporations, right? So it was a way to try to deal with the multi, uh, what had become very large electric companies. It made the, it regulated them, said they couldn't get too big, uh, a lot of different uh, things that the electric industry had to do. They couldn't gamble with ratepayer money. They were supposed to focus on providing electric service. The electric industry was not happy. They began red baiting almost immediately about this. But the um, 
the um, advocates to really stop the natural gas industry from its misbehavior did not um, give up. These were a lot of municipal officials from around the country whose consumers were being ripped off by gas. So in 1938, they were able to pass the Natural Gas Act. This is important for what's happened today. Uh, the Natural Gas Act regulated pipelines. Um, there was a process for building pipelines, and it regulated the price of gas. So this regulatory body, the Federal Power Commission, had the ability to use what it cost to produce the gas and a fair profit to come up with the price. The oil and gas industry were furious. So I'm going to kind of skip World War II because <laughs> there's a lot to talk about and we don't have that much time, but I will just say that a lot of the technologies that are used today uh, were developed beginning in World War II and the industry really was able to benefit from the welding technologies, uh, buying pipelines that the government or the taxpayer money had uh, financed, and a lot of other benefits. But after the war, um, the fights that were going on before the war kind of took off again because during World War II, everybody was kind of focused on winning the war and there was a lot of corporate misbehavior, but there wasn't a lot of advocacy around it because it was all, all the pressure was, let's win the war. That kind of sounds familiar too, right? <laughs> um, so I want to talk about this guy who is a, another crook that, we, uh, uh, that was elected to Congress. This is Senator Robert Kerr. He was elected in 1948, and uh, he'd been the governor of Oklahoma, the oil state. He owned Kerr-McGee, which was a big oil company and later a uranium company that had a lot of uh, uh, bad behavior that we don't have time to go into either. But his entire 15 years in Congress, he died of a, a heart attack in office, were focused on protecting the oil and gas industry, getting as many subsidies, helping it develop its power as much as possible. There were a number of these legislators. I'm kind of picking on him because I think he is one of the worst. He was involved, for instance, in uh, getting the golden gimmick for the seven sisters who uh, drill uh, in Saudi Arabia, and this actually still exists today. Uh, if the giant oil companies that are in Saudi Arabia get a special tax break. I have the story in, in Fracopoli, and it's kind of outrageous. Also, the, um, uh, the benefits around reserves, uh, the oil depletion tax break that the oil and gas industry still gets together, uh, gets today, that was Kerr. And interestingly enough, his great nephew uh, was the late Aubrey McClendon. For those of you who follow this carefully, uh, of uh, Chesapeake, who died under very mysterious circumstances the day after he was indicted by the Department of Justice. I figure that uh, he was about to name names, although you know there's no real investigation, just a lot of chatter on the uh, internet. 
But anyway, there, there were a whole group of policymakers who were helping to funnel money to the oil and gas industry. Now, the other thing that was happening is that the Seven Sisters were either focused on getting exempted from the... Um, the laws focused on monopoly power, which still existed during this period, or uh, they were having conspiracies to uh, get around them because they really wanted to be able to get bigger. They wanted to be able to work together to fix prices. They wanted to be able to really focus federal policy on um, the things that they needed. So John J. McCloy is boy, what a piece of work. I read a thousand page biography about him. I, I will not go into all of the horrible things he did, but I will say he helped run the War Department and was um, one of the people responsible for the internment of the Japanese and for not uh, doing something about Nazi death camps. And that was just the beginning of his um, really bad uh, behavior. And he worked for nine presidents in some capacity. He was someone, he was part of that layer of government that exists kind of under the radar screen. You know, the consultants, the diplomats, the advisors. And he played a number of different roles, but uh, he finally died under the Reagan administration. But one of his top jobs was representing the Seven Sisters in their uh, fights with the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. And when they wanted to oppose one of the oil-producing country, countries and they wanted to get together and write an agreement about how they were going to uh, try to uh, take control of the situation in the Middle East. And, you know, a lot of this anger ended up uh, happening because the big uh, major oil companies never paid fairly for the resources from the beginning, about 10% of the profits that the uh, uh, the big majors made on average. So there's a lot of anger and it continued to grow through the decades. So anyway, um, McCloy went during the um, Kennedy administration actually and approached um, Kennedy on behalf of the Seven Sisters to get permission to um, break the antitrust laws. He got permission and it wasn't necessary under the Kennedy administration to do what they wanted to do. But for the next several presidents, through John Mitchell of Reagan, the Reagan administration, they had permission to work together to uh, kind of fix prices and to actually uh, not deal fairly with um, the nations in the Middle East. But that's just part of the story. So I'm going to skip up to Richard Nixon now because um, Nixon was um, very close to the oil and gas industry, even though they didn't get everything they wanted from him. But he, um, for instance, allowed a lot of the offshore drilling that went on to happen then for decades. He also... Um, 
for his re-election had uh, accepted suitcases of money from different industries. And I uh, documented some money, $700,000 that he got in a suitcase from an executive from Pennzoil uh, for his re-election committee. He got about $20 million, uh, a lot of it in cash, to be re-elected. And uh, he did a lot of things that were really favorable to the oil and gas industry. Now, I want to have a little um, diverge a little bit. I want to talk about one of his appointees because I think what Lewis Powell did has had such an effect on our nation today. So many of you may know about this already, but Lewis Powell was a corporate attorney in Richmond, Virginia. And he was very active in the Chamber of Commerce. And he and a number of very right-leaning, politically involved people were very upset about what was going on in the uh, 1960s. They were mad about the Warren Court, for instance. They were angry that the Warren Court was extending rights to classes of people who had had no rights before. They were mad about the protests uh, about Vietnam. They thought society was deteriorating. They were mad that uh, Walter Cronkite at CBS and other commentators were giving Uh, press to the civil rights movement, to um, the anti-war movement. They were mad that ministers were getting involved in these issues and they wanted to take back the country from liberal values. And, you know, I think that this is a real marker in uh, what's happened to our nation. He wrote a several-page memo you know, if you haven't read it, read it. It's instructive. It's, uh, you can find it several places on uh, the internet, either under PAL Manifesto or PAL uh, more, uh, Memo, and you can read it in its entirety. But what he actually did was he laid out a plan for how to take back the country. And he said that it uh, would lie in, you know, strength lies in organization. He talked about it being long range and how they had to take back universities, uh, all of the most important institutions in the country, including the media. And not only did he come up with this very strategic plan, although evil, he then went out and helped raise the money to do it. So um, the Koch uh, family, a lot of these people had already uh, tried to elect Goldwater in 1964, Uh, but the uh, Scaife Mellon family, Gulf Oil Money, uh, Coors family, so a lot of these very uh, right-wing families that had big foundations. And over the next several decades, they were able to uh, create more than 100 uh, right-wing public interest uh, institutes, many of them masquerading as if they're objective. I mean, we know the the most, uh, uh, the ones that get quoted the most, the Heritage Foundation, Cato. Um, anyway, I think it had a real impact. 
and the oil industry was really involved in this as well. And uh, it's also interesting, Powell, when he was on the Supreme Court, he wrote the first decision giving corporations political speech. So kind of put into uh, motion uh, Citizens United, uh, etc. And what's really sad is he's considered a liberal justice today. I mean, please. So um, the Democrats also started getting corporate money uh, in the 19, later uh, 1970s and, and the 1980s more than they had in the past and unfortunately have always been cheaper to buy, right? But um, this is Jimmy Carter signing a, a bill to create the Department of Energy. And if you follow uh, drilling and fracking, you know that the Department of Energy plays a big role. Many of us who are old enough remember that the Department of Energy was supposed to do a lot of research on alternative energy. They did some. They also um, promoted um, kind of an all-of-the-above strategy, especially coal. But um, at the same time, a couple years later, the um, deregulation of the natural gas industry also occurred. Now, from the time that I was talking about under uh, the Roosevelt administration, oil and gas and the utilities had been fighting to get rid of these rules that were passed in the 1930s really fighting, like red-baiting the commissioners at the Federal Power Commission, anybody who spoke in favor of these things. I mean, in the 1950s, they were really uh, tormented. It took them all those decades to build the political power to actually pass the legislation under the Carter administration. But at the same time, Jimmy Carter had created the Department of Energy, which um, eliminated the Federal Power Commission and created a new agency called the Federal Power Regulatory Commission. So the agency that we have to deal with today for power lines, infrastructure, and a lot of the things that we're dealing with. Um, and the other thing that happened is all of the different functions in the federal government related to energy were all brought together under the Department of Energy, and it was made a cabinet-level post. And a lot of the bad things that we are living from today really took place in that agency. You know, the devil is always in the details, right? So beginning in 1912, the oil and gas industry really spent a lot of effort on making sure that federal tax dollars were spent on all of the technologies that would help um, them really um, get, get a hold of the energy policy in the country. So, you know, if you've followed fracking at all, you may have read one of these kind of uh, nauseating books glorifying the, uh, the wildcatters who began fracking and saying they were brilliant entrepreneurs. Well, a lot of the technologies that they credit these entrepreneurs with, actually, uh, even the, um, the drilling that they did um, in the early period for fracking was paid for by DOE, and a lot of the technologies uh, were developed by our taxpayer dollars. 
So the deregulation of natural gas is important for fracking and what's happened today. So when uh, the Federal Power Commission was eliminated because it had um, regulated the price of gas and building of pipelines, it opened the floodgates for building more pipelines and uh, they have more than doubled uh, between 84 and 2014 more than 900,000 um, miles of pipelines and in fact thousands more miles of pipelines are under construction today. We don't even know how many because in many states uh, the gathering lines, some of the lines aren't even counted. This really brings us up to the Reagan era. And, um, you know, I think to understand monopoly power, we have to take a minute to uh, talk about Ronald Reagan. Because the economic interests that were concerned with becoming very large, having a lot of uh, ability to be powerful multinationals, to reorient the U.S.'s trade policy uh, for their benefit, to become really giant, including the oil industry, which was a big funder of Reagan. They uh, developed Ronald Reagan into their candidate. And um, one of the agreements was that if he would be elected, that um, they would get rid of traditional antitrust law. And this uh, man next to Reagan is Robert Bork, who is a right-wing scholar who came up with this um, idea that um, monopolies are good, they're good for consumers, and if the price isn't too high, if there's a consumer benefit, then we should just let the, the mergers and acquisitions happen. So they've greatly narrowed the definition of an antitrust violation. And actually, uh, between World War II and when Reagan was elected, both political parties agreed that uh, monopoly power was bad because small business couldn't uh, compete. Uh, there was a recognition about the political power. But uh, this, this has all been uh, eliminated and with this kind of right-wing ideology that for efficiency you need uh, big companies, mergers are good, the marketplace is self-policing. All things that we have come to see are not true. And sadly, skipping ahead to the uh, Clinton administration, um, a lot of what Bill Clinton did was actually modeled on the same things that the Reagan administration had been promoting. And a lot of the deregulation that we're suffering from today of the um, financial services industry, I mean, the, uh, the crash that we had in 2008 um, really goes back to getting rid of those protective rules that were passed in the 1930s. Uh, all of the, um, the, the so-called free trade bills or policies um, and the big oil and gas mergers and a lot of the media mergers really speeded up, sadly, under um, President Clinton, along with a lot of the other things that we're suffering from today, the, you know, the uh, policies, that, um, the social policies, like destroying our social welfare net. You know, a lot of the, this goes back to the Clinton administration. 
And one of Clinton's allies was someone that those of you who are old enough, who were of age in the 1990s, might recognize. This is Ken Lay, who um, was um, eventually indicted and was going to go to jail, and then he mysteriously died of a heart attack, too. Um, but Lay played a big part in deregulating the electric industry. He also played a big part here in California of uh, high rates that you may be paying for today because the deregulatory measures that he fought for uh, actually almost ruined the uh, electric utilities here. There were blackouts in the 1990s. And then the electric industry, Edison and uh, PG&E were bailed out by cons um, both uh, by consumers and uh, allowed to get even bigger and bigger. But those changes to the electric industry, the uh, deregulation, the creation of a wholesale market in electricity, some of that retail deregulation, it was really taking what should be considered a resource for people's use and further commodifying it so it could be uh, sold, um, gambled on, uh, futures contracts, all of those shenanigans that we, we see today. And the other thing that's really happened is a lot more energy is being generated today. So rather than conserving energy and moving in the right direction so for uh, client, to prevent climate chaos, between 2003 and 2013, natural gas use went up um, 73% in the United States. It really unleashed uh, natural gas. So Ken Lay is a, uh, uh, played a very interesting role in this. He befriended some of the major environmental groups uh, who also signed off on the, uh, uh, the deregulation. And uh, um, he played a really negative role in, that continues to reverberate today. So the Obama administration, um, you know, I got ahead of myself. Yeah, that slide was out of place, sorry. Um, so I want to move into um, the Bush administration, Bush II, because a lot of what happened in the Energy Policy Act is affecting natural gas use today. You probably know about the Halberton loophole that the oil and gas industry are actually uh, exempt from the Safe Drinking Water Act. That's been uh, the root cause of a lot of uh, the water pollution. The other thing that's not as well known is that that Public Utility Holding Company Act that I talked about that was passed in 1935 that prevented uh, electric utilities from getting too big and a lot of their bad behavior, that was repealed. And so today we have uh, about 20 giant utilities that control more than 50% of uh, electric and in many cases gas. I mean, Sempra is a good example of a, a multinational corporation that could not have existed under the Public Utility Holding Company Act. It engages in every type of business through its subsidiaries. It has regulated businesses where 
Um, and the regulated industry still gets consumers to pay for a lot of their mistakes. I mean, Edison is going to do that, right? Edison International subsidiary, uh, Southern California Edison, uh, it's going to be bailed out probably for its mistakes at San Onofre. I mean, they, you know, this is the kind of thing that's happened uh, because of the uh, repeal of uh, PUCA, which many of us fought tooth and nail to protect for about 15 years. Um, and then the other thing is that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, was given greatly expanded powers. It was given the power of um, eminent domain so that it can go in and condemn public land or uh, the land that belongs to homeowners, anybody's land, uh, to build pipelines, liquefied natural gas facilities, whatever they, whatever the oil and gas industry desires. And it was given the power over one of our nation's most important uh, environmental laws, the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires a um, environmental assessment of big projects. So it's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. And FERC has almost never seen an electric power line, a pipeline, or gas or gas infrastructure that it doesn't love. And then uh, the Obama administration obviously has also favored um, the natural gas industry in so many ways. I think I'm beginning to uh, go beyond my uh, uh, allotted time, so I'm just going to skip through this kind of quickly. But I do want to show that the um, seven sisters that are now four are among the ten largest frackers, and a lot of the rules that have benefited them and the other parts of the fracking industry they lobbied for and have uh, really helped put us in this position. And so uh, what we see here is really what we have to stop. These are a number of the places where there are shale plays or pipelines that make it attractive to um, have build new gas-fired plants. And there are plans for much, much more uh, natural gas-fired capacity. And this is really the battle that we're in. Stop fracking, stop the storage uh, facilities, uh, the new ones, try to close down the old ones, and uh, all towards uh, keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And obviously we have uh, a big movement. It's a diverse movement. It's all around the country. Um, a very um, dedicated movement to really try to turn our energy policy around. And um, just to show you a few of these pictures. I mean, I just find it. Uh, I really love how young people, too, are getting involved in all of these battles and how involved young people have been in this election season because we really we need all kinds of diversity, including more young people involved. And it, it's really about um, climate and the, the future, right? And we want a life for our children and grandchildren. So there is going to be a big march for a clean energy future that about 600 organizations are sponsoring. We have some folks here who will be attending. And uh, we're very excited because we are going to declare 
our independence from fossil fuels um, in Philadelphia. And we're going to continue to put pressure on both parties to do the right thing about energy. And no matter who wins in November, we have a lot of work ahead of us. So I'm going to end now and ask Sandy and Matt, who are really wonderful local activists working on different aspects of this battle over um, our energy future. They're going to come up and say a few words. They'll take questions. I can take questions. But let me have you come on up. ask me any questions about her book. I haven't quite read it yet. <laughs> should ask her. Oh yeah, um, my name is Matt Pacuco. I'm the uh, president and co-founder of a group called Save Porter Ranch. We... <laughs> we were formed April 2014 when we found out that they're going to be doing fracking, or they were fracking, right behind Porter Ranch. I mean, we moved here for the beautiful hills and the sunshine and the clean air and then found out that that's not really what was going on. Um, and that was thanks to a Food and Water Watch um, came down to you know, fight the frackers at a presentation at a neighborhood council meeting. And then we, um, I, I'd known, known a long time before that that fracking was bad and I'd done my dabbling in, in, in fighting it. But then when I found out it's in my backyard, it was okay, we have to start this and let the community know what's going on that nobody even knew about, as it turns out. We went door to door and found out people were going, you know, oil wells, what? Yeah, they're right behind the hill there that you, where you can't see them. Everything's right behind the first hill, out of sight. The whole, yeah, besides the oil drilling, we found out about the whole. Um, solid cal gas facility, the you know biggest underground gas storage facility in the western United States. Nobody knew. So um, we organized uh, the neighbors, educated a lot of people, had a lot of you know meetings um, to tell people about you know fracking at first. And as as we grew and learn more, we found out that the gas facility was probably even more of a danger. And so we started, we set up, you know, to do our own air monitoring and our own health study door to door. And that was set to launch um, on October 25th last year. And October 23rd, uh, SoCal Gas did a real big advertisement for what we were doing by having their blowout. So, um, we went, you know, from a little uh, local organization to kind of a front-page organization overnight. Uh, but we we were ready. We hit the ground running. We were already organized, and it just got bigger. And we were able to get the word out there even more to to counter the crap that comes out of out of the industry and out of SoCal Gas. It's like everything they said was a lie from from day one, where they said they didn't even have a leak, and it just got worse from there. So. We're up against you know a big, a pretty evil empire. Um, the whole that whole industry, they just they just man, 
the more I find how evil they are, the, the worse it gets. Uh, the, it's after hearing what Winona just said about about how you know tough this uh, this uh, enemy is. It, I was kind of like depressed, thinking, "Oh well, what is there, how do we fight this?" But no, we we fight this by you know by exactly what's going on here and, and keep organizing more people and informing more people and it will just grow the, the same way as they grew. They grew from nothing back in, you know, someone discovered oil and people, oh, we don't need that, we have horses, you know. So um, it's, it's the same thing, it's just in a new era. So we're going to continue on and get bigger and better and better and eventually we're going to shut it all down. Hi, uh, good afternoon. My name is Sandy Navarro. I'm a community resident in South Los Angeles. I'm also a community organizer for a nonprofit called Esperanza Community Housing. And um, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, and I got involved in this issue. I, you know, I was born and raised in South Los Angeles, and I never knew oil drilling was happening in our neighborhood. I went to elementary school right next door, and it wasn't until I went to college that Mountain Mary's College, which is literally divided by a wall between this drilling site and, um, you know, the campus. And so I got involved um, through Esperanza. You know, we, we started hearing in, like, around 2010 that our residents were, you know, complaining of voters and that their children were waking up with... Um, uh, pillows soaked in blood, and so we thought, hey, something's going on here. And so we, you know, we found out there's a drilling site right across from one of our affordable housing buildings. And so that was a huge issue, especially because housing in LA is, you know, it's, it's scarce, right? And so it's a huge issue. Um, and and, and so we started organizing our tenants, um, our community. Uh, we started documenting the odors. We started, you know, making phone calls to the agencies that are supposed to regulate the air and that are supposed to respond, right? And so um, the lack of response pushed us to, you know, start conducting our own health surveys, trying to document what the, the symptoms. And... Um, and, you know, and so we found out that, you know, this, um, you know, we had a reporter from the LA Times come out and interview some of our residents, and, of course, a photographer came out, this little boy who had nosebleeds all the time, you know, um, you know, just started having a nosebleed, and she caught the picture, you know, and I think that's really what, um, you know, impacted so many people, led Senator Barbara Boxer to come out and ask this facility, which is operating on land owned by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, so, um, and that's just one of the drilling sites, right, and so, um, the church that, you know, it's supposed to preach and, and that is preaching about doing the right thing is not, you know, responding and has never responded to our phone calls. Uh, we've had our community also, you know, write a letter and make a video ple pleading, you know, um, that they, you know, shut this facility down. And they've never responded. So we continue to organize. Um, you know, we also found out that, you know, uh, we weren't the only community impacted by this. You know, we, we found that there's another drilling site a few blocks down. Um, and then a third drilling site that's also owned by the Archdiocese. And so uh, we formed uh, the Stand Coalition, which is Stand Together Against Neighborhood Drilling. And it's really a bunch of organizations and allies, uh, Porter Ranch as well, um, who, you know, are coming together to try to leverage our resources because, you know, this issue is just impacting us. You know, it's happening literally feet away from our homes. And so, and nobody's willing to step, you know, step up to the plate and address this issue. And so, you know, I find it beautiful that our communities, you know, that all of us are coming together, um, you know, to, um, I don't know, just move away from this antiquated practice, right, and, and really, um, 
you know, push, you know, the people that are supposed to regulate these agencies to, you know, do their job. And really, we're trying to um, end neighborhood drilling. We're trying to end all type of drilling. That's that's our really our mission. Um, and so, um, you know, that's what I do right now. We're trying to work with um, universities as well um, to try to collect some of the health data because, um, you know, really the data is not there, especially in urban communities like South Los Angeles. So we're really, um, you know, trying to make a difference and, um, you know, and, and hold people accountable. And so that's really what I do in South Los Angeles. That's me, um, Sandy Navarro. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we can take questions now from Matt or Sandy or me. We'll start here. So uh, I was wondering if you could share a little bit with the audience here, since not everyone is familiar with the history and background of Food and Water Watch, what some of the work that Food and Water Watch has done here in Southern California, going back to you know the Cadiz project and all the way through today. Well, I'll start it, and then maybe I'll ask one of our staff to stand up. I mean, Food and Water Watch is going on 11 years now. I worked for um, one of the Ralph Nader groups, uh, Public Citizen, for almost a decade. And, you know, Ralph at one time could go in with Nader's Raiders, march into Congress, find some allies, get a lot of things done. Well... Those days are very long past, and it just became apparent that the only way we're going to change anything is through grassroots action and amplifying the voices of people who are in the trenches and really uh, bringing some accountability. And so that's kind of where we have put our uh, resources. And I'll just say that one of our bread and butter issues has been to stop water privatization. Uh, Municipal water privatizations, uh, these uh, terrible tunnels, um, a lot. We've been doing this for uh, really starting at Public Citizen. And I think it's actually one of the success stories of grassroots organizing is how many communities around this country have stopped private water companies from coming in. And, of course, they are also very excited, these private water companies, about fracking and wastewater. They want to recycle it here and poison people with it. They, you know, it's, it's all about profiteering. So do you want to say say something? Sure. I mean, that's probably right. <laughs> Hey everyone. hey everyone, I'm Alex. I'm one of the organizers down here in Los Angeles. Um, good to see you. Yeah, and I recognize people from all over LA County who we're working with, fighting in the trenches with. So give yourselves a round of applause. Cool. And so some of the work we've been doing down here has just been on the oil and gas issues. Originally, we, we worked on a campaign to stop fracking in California. We realized it's a much bigger issue than that. We need to keep it in the ground. And so we're working in Carson. I see people from Carson here. Give them a round of applause. We're continuing to fight the fight there um, where they've had uh, proposals for drilling and defeated those and fracking bans and continue to push that forward and then of course we're working in Porter Ranch on food issues so yeah I'm, I'm going to sit down now please ask Winona a question yeah. 
Well, we're going to need to have um, different transportation options, right? I mean, we have to reform our electric system if we're going to have electric cars because that's what's really uh, being put forward as uh, the solution. But, yeah. <laughs> okay, here. Um, thanks for coming. Uh, I read that the Obama administration approved offshore fracking. Um, is, I didn't know that was a thing. Is that happening? What's yeah, off the, off the, uh, sorry. Through that and had the gallons of water Well, you know, we don't know a whole lot about fracking offshore now. We do know it's been taking place probably around the world because uh, I saw when I was writing Fracopoly ads for people with um, expertise for fracking. Um, so the it, it is being allowed now off the coast of California. Yes, it appears that they will be using uh, chemicals and large amounts of water and we're doing research now to see exactly what those impacts are going to be, but we can imagine that they're going to be similar to on land. I don't know yet. We're, we're really doing research. You know, it's like when fracking first started. Um, we didn't know a lot of the facts, so it is new that they're admitting it. <laughs> so now we have to try to look at their literature and figure it out. It just happened uh, uh, about a month ago. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm curious about um, the motivation to write your book because I know you do so much um, with with organizing and research, and I'm wondering what are your hopes that Fracopoli will will do? Is it is it like to help with help? Um, inspire the movement? Is it to help um, uh, create more eco-literacy? What was the intent? Well, I talked about this a little in the beginning, but I'll say one of the major intentions was to show that it's deregulation and that the only way we're really going to be able to jumpstart renewables and energy efficiency is organizing for public policy, not depending on the market. The idea that the market is going to bring us renewables, we would all be using renewable energy if that were the case. So it, it's really making um, a case that it's only by organizing to hold our elected officials accountable to make them do these things that we're going to do it. We need to stop as environmentalists saying, oh, the market's going to do it. Yes, the price is coming down, but we, you know, we generated 5.5% of our electricity from um, wind, solar, and geothermal, real renewable resources. If you count geothermal in there, it's only a small percentage. And we really need to do better than that. And we need to know how the deregulation brought us here. You know, it, it didn't just happen. Yes? So the citizens, the citizens climate lobby, We're not real excited about the carbon tax, and I'll tell you why. First of all, rather than coming up with financial schemes like cap and trade, carbon taxes, why don't we just tell them not to do it? People understand that. People understand. 
So we're looking at the carbon tax because um, when you look at who wants it, Exxon has spoken in favor of a carbon tax, uh, saying that as long as it's revenue neutral, they support it. So we started looking at the data because the only way you can have this argument with other environmental groups who are so enthusiastic about this is looking at the data. And we're going to be soon releasing the uh, briefing paper, but you'll see that um, British Columbia is being used as the example that carbon uh, emissions were reduced. So we looked at their numbers. Well, it turns out the numbers they're using are um, for the years that were the recession, not more recently. So yes, there was less carbon, um, but we'll see what happens in the future. And, um, you know, I'm worried that that's the best we can do because I don't believe you can go out and organize people to tax themselves. I think it's going to be another thing that the right wing uses against us. And I remember when Clinton was in office and I worked for the, I think it was the Union of Concerned Scientists then, and we were supposed to organize and advocate for the carbon tax. Did not fly. So let's ask for what we want, which is to keep it in the ground, to you know, to have a Marshall Plan, to have a big plan with resources that go into it to figure out how we're going to do this. Surely this is as big a crisis as World War II that our climate is uh, about to go under. Yeah, I want to piggyback on that. If um, One of the biggest for-profit companies on the planet says that, hey, we like that. That's because it's good for their profits. So it's a suspect right there. Yeah. Okay, I'm trying to do this orderly. I think you were next and then you were next. And then we'll get back there. <laughs> Since you were talking about the trade agreements and you got very close to it and you were with Public Citizen, uh, do you want to let this group know about investor-to-state dispute settlement? Well, and that could have prevented, in hindsight, obviously, it could have prevented the, the crash of 29. Right. Well, I mean, when you let investors, NAFTA has investor dispute um, provision that will be in the TPP. And this is something that allows um, companies, corporations, to sue local, state, and the federal government if one of those governments takes protective action for their citizens. So it goes across many, many issues. And it would also, the TPP, would um, uh, allow a lot more export of liquefied natural gas. It would just basically, any country that was a party to it would just automatically get an expedited uh, liquefied natural gas um, exports. And um, if under the investor dispute uh, clause, it means that if, a co if some locality has uh, banned fracking, let's say New York State, that a company, foreign company, can um, sue New York State for loss of profits. That's what trade agreements are. They're not about trade and tariffs. They're about multinational power. Multinational corporate power. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Why, why don't we give somebody else a chance? Yeah. <laughs> yes. How Good. How do stop? Right. And also, how safe are you living there? 
Well, the blowout was supposedly stopped, you know, a few months back. But even after then, up to this very day, a lot of people are still getting sick from something that's going on coming off of that hill. And that's pretty well documented. And there have been so many other problems found with all those wells up there since now the, you know, the microscope is on that facility. It's basically full of holes. It's aging. It's been leaking. And uh, most of their wells, most, I don't remember the exact number, most of them could not pass some basic integrity test and had to be taken offline. Even more than that. But uh, taken offline, but other ones have not passed the, the basic. It's just like a huge number. In the, initially, it was like 60 or 80 percent. And that's what we've been breathing all this time, is all that stuff been leaking. So now, um, so no, we're not safe. And then because people are still getting sick to this very day, there's a huge problem with that place. Okay, the gentleman back here who's had his hand up. Thank you. I want to know um, what your sense of urgency is. I heard you say at the uh, beginning of the talk that maybe 10 or 15 more years of natural gas. Uh, we're already at 1.5. We're already over 400 parts per million. Bill McKibben says if we want to stay below 1.5, we need to stop burning carbon in the next four years. That's my urgency. Uh, but methane in the shorter period is a much more potent greenhouse gas. I mean, we have to get off fossil fuels or we're going to have a major calamity. We're going to go beyond the tipping point and it's going to devastate uh, a lot of lives around so the world. What's your level of optimism on, on our doing it in time? My level of optimism is nothing has happened until it's happened. We're going to fight like hell, right? And go out and save our communities and the planet. And we're not going to let these politicians be let their political aspirations ruin the planet. And we're building a movement, so I'm optimistic. Um, I'm having trouble getting to all these. But I'm going to go this way, okay, so I don't miss people. So I, you would. But, but to piggyback on that comment, because I agree entirely with where people are going, the climate movement has got to ramp up. Because they're going to have to start on this crisis. Absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the reasons we formed Food and Water Watch. We know we have to push our own allies. Yeah. You know, a lot, yeah. I totally agree. And until someone, until someone starts calling it an emergency, demands that our political leaders treat it as an emergency, things such as Obama should be giving a major climate emergency. We should have a response to Obama. The government, Obama yeah. should be telling people what they need to do to conserve, to transition, Okay, let's move. Yes. So, can you speak a little to what's happening right now in Colorado um, with the push at citizens basically calling for a ban on fracking? And you have politicians like Hillary Clinton 
say I support banning fracking where local support is there. You see a community pushing to ban fracking and the oil industry coming in and sending millions and millions. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that? There is a, a giant fight going on in Colorado. I was there just um, 10 days ago um, at our Food and Water Watch office. Communities there like Longmont passed bans on fracking. Uh, the governor of Colorado, Democratic Governor Hickenlooper, who comes out of the oil and gas industry and is a big supporter of fracking and the oil and, and gas interests in the state, um, sued the, um, um, basically allowed the Supreme Court to overrule the local bans. So the local bans are um, basically going to be gone. And so a number of organizations, local groups who'd fought for the bans, uh, Food and Water Watch, now a, a number of national groups have come on too, including I think uh, Greenpeace and I think uh, the local 350 is on board, um, are out collecting names for two initiatives that would uh, basically be more like a moratorium on fracking. One of them would uh, create a 2,500-foot um, distance between wells and schools and houses that would basically close down the, uh, down the industry. Now the debate is whether they can collect enough names. They've now raised, I know we've been busy raising money for uh, uh, months to have uh, people, to pay people to go out and collect signatures. If it's on the ballot, it probably will be one of the most environmental, uh, important environmental battles for the uh, uh, election in um, in November. And uh, you can go to our website and, or um, Google uh, Food and Water Watch Colorado uh, fracking initiatives. We have a lot of information on it. Oh, I can't see you. Sorry. I couldn't hear. Um, we haven't been um, involved in divestment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of it's organizing on university campuses. Yes, you know, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, organizations that are involved. I mean, one of the reasons we haven't gotten involved in it is we fight a lot of corporations. We have a food program, we have a water program, and a lot of the divestment options are other corporations we fight. So, I mean, honestly, it's kind of messy for us because there are a lot of bad corporations that are being considered clean investments, especially in, especially in the water area. Uh, yeah, including Nestle. Okay, we're coming around. Yes. This is a question for Sandy. Um, <laughs> thank you for what you're doing. And can you speak to organizing communities that are, are having a rough time working more than one job just to afford their bus pass? and what, what you had to go through. And the LA Archdiocese, I, 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 I had known about this, but I heard some gasps when you start talking about how the, the uh, LA Catholic Archdiocese owns a lot of oil fields and a lot of oil property. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, it was a challenge for us because uh, University Park is a, uh, you know, it's a diverse community. You have longtime residents who are predominantly Spanish speaking, so there's a language barrier whenever information comes in. And then you have uh, the student population who's very transient, you know, so they kind of don't really hear about the issue and they're not really invested. And so it's hard, you know, to get people. Um, invested in. And so, um, you know, what we do with Esperanza is that um, we have a, a model called community health promoters. And so we really try to educate every year a class of community health promoters. And, and we try to use that program um, to start, you know, mobilizing residents where we identify the issue, we document the issue, and most of all, we empower, like, residents to, like, speak up, um, to put pressure. And so um, for us, it was um, surprising that our campaign, which is called People Not Bozos, meaning people not oil wells, um, got so far because for us, um, our focus was a lot like the health impact. and, and um, and the environment, you know, the outdoor air quality. And so, um, you know, for us um, to have a community that's predominantly Spanish-speaking and to get that far, um, I think was um, empowering for them. And and so the fact that the city attorney is now, like, you know, focused on this drilling site and that recently there was an injunction placed on Alenco uh, that would require a lot of, air, you know, monitoring, 24-hour monitoring for the next four years, which is still not enough because, you know, we were not about regulating so much because, you know, accidents happen. Um, we also know that these facilities tend to lie to the agencies or the fire department. There's records of them lying. And so that's not enough. So for us, it's just really ending neighborhood drilling, uh, all type of drilling. And um, But overall, you know, the organizing is really what um, has gotten our, our campaign, you know, so far. And so we're really proud. I'm really proud um, to have our the people that are impacted leading the way, you know. Thank you. Mm -hmm. idea. I mean, we know even today that public power, public water it provide better services than and cheaper services than corporate. Um, but I'm talking about from extraction. No, I know what you're talking about. I mean, I know what you're talking about. I think it's a long process, but I think, of course, energy should be local, as local as possible. It can't always be local. And really, we have to get away from extractive um, industries anyway. I mean, extractive industries are the whole problem that, that we're dealing with. We really need to use a lot less a lot less energy. I mean, figure plastic. Uh, about 76% of natural gas today is for plastic. You know, plastic for uh, food wrapping. Uh, you know, we've got to change that. We have to change our economic system. I mean, this is big of a part of a much bigger, uh, bigger problem. So I think we have room maybe for. Um, we have a lot more questions, and we're really running out of time. So maybe we could. He's been waiting a while. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I'm saying maybe some of you can come and the person that you have a question for afterwards. Um, I don't know how. Are we okay on time? Can we keep going? 
You know, we have an agreement for Okay, five more minutes. So if you've asked a question already, don't put your hand up. <laughs> so we have somebody who's way over here who's had his hand yeah, up a long time. I was going to kind of piggyback on what he was saying. I don't know if people are familiar with Guy McPherson. And he's saying that, uh, you know, he passed the tipping point, but he's on the fringe, but he provides a lot of evidence. But nonetheless, we should still fight for social justice and clean energy regardless, even if we pass that tipping point. But I think it's important that what Food and Water Watch does and uh, she does with her book, she brings in like what the banks, the intersection of power, and what's happening, and large environmental groups have been complicit in a lot of this stuff. And even though they've done great work in many respects, you've got big environmental groups allowing for deregulation, EDF and NRDC in the late 90s in our power industry, or Sierra Club getting gas money, or uh, the Perg running Hillary Clinton's campaign, the old you know Nader group. These things need to be uh, pointed out, and they're important. But uh, you know, not to say that these groups don't do good work, but it's you know what Food and Water Watch does is really getting down the core of the grassroots and what the truth is about what's going on overall. Like bringing in all dynamics and saying this is this is what's happening and how our system is is so corrupt and we need people on a grassroots level to really affect change. So it's not really a question, but... You know. Okay. Thank you for the compliment. Yes. Yeah, on your, on your chart of your intertwining of all of these forces, I think the only uh, traditional nonprofit was the Nature Conservancy, which actually owns fracking sites. Uh, the, a lot of the nonprofits that were uh, listed up there were trade associations. So things like um, the Foreign Policy Association, you know, nonprofits that are actually speaking for industry um, and often um, represent industry in the media. Um, you know, I write a chapter about Environmental Defense Fund, for instance. And, I mean, I don't consider Environmental Defense Fund an environmental group. I do. They've uh, now. <coughs> Spend, I mean, they have, a, they have good, some good staff there, but you can't, for years, decades, run interference for corporations and really be an environmental group. So I would put them in a league that's a little bit different than some of the other big groups that um, may have been too close to uh, industry. And I'll just say that a lot of it is the big funders. You know, it's the Energy Foundation up in the Presidio, really, that's funded a lot of the energy work over the last several uh, decades, including uh, deregulation, now making fracking safer. So, you know, that's part of what we're up against, but we have to try to all work in the same direction and I really do think it's the grassroots that's going to take us over the edge and I just don't think it's useful to be defeatist you know what I mean I know we're in a tough place but what we have to do is build the power and the excitement and get lots of young people involved and be in the streets and you know and uh, we hopefully can stop the worst of this so Maybe one more question, and maybe somebody has a, a question for these other folks who haven't had as much of an opportunity to talk as they should deserve. Or maybe you want to just make a statement at the end. Maybe that's better. Why don't you both 
say something, and then we can have conversation, and we'll sign books. I, if you have a book, I'll sign it. I'm sure both of these folks would sign it. I didn't bring my book. No, I mean, sign other people's books. Did they ever think about sending a petition to the Pope? Um, so we actually did um, send a letter and we also created a video for the Pope um, which you can find on our website and on YouTube and we haven't had a response. We had the community read the letter and you know we filmed it and, and sent it over and we have not received a response. So but yeah, but I would uh, be gladly be glad to share with you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I want to comment on what the gentleman said about the messaging and how this is really a crisis. What I've noticed, when we got, say, Puerto Ranch organized, we found out that we had a crisis right behind the first hill behind our house, but most people, if you, they look around their lives and they look around Puerto Ranch, they see it's beautiful and I can go to work and, you know, I, the breeze is nice. And they, they don't, if we came out and said emergency crisis, oh my God, we're all going to die, we wouldn't have been listened to. So, and the, most of the, a lot of the world, people... Their life goes on. They don't see these problems. They don't know about them. They go to work. They got their job. They go home. To come, we don't want to come out sounding like extremists, crying, you know, fire in the movie theater or whatever. You got to kind of ease them into the conversation. Once people wake up and see what's going on, then you got some traction with them. But in my experience, you got to, you know, you, what worked for us was showing how some very small things directly affect their life every day and that's how you got we got their attention so and I want to yeah and also this other woman asked about you know we, we expect everyone to just you know park our cars and start walking no it's going to be a long process we, we, the world is entrenched in fossil fuels right now and we're not saying hey you know Get out of your car and start walking. It's going to be a long process. It's going to take a lot of education, and it's going to take a while. It's not going to happen overnight, but it has to be done. And, again, we're not doing some sort of extremist thing where, you know, everyone's life has to change tomorrow to save the world. That's, you know, maybe that is the case, <laughs> um, but we can't present it that way or people just won't buy it. Thank you. Um, so I guess I just want to say thank you for, for the invitation, first of all, to Food and Water Watch. And thank you to you all for coming out here and for caring about this issue and for, you know, listening. Um, you know, and um, I, I think I just want to say, like, I encourage you all to, like, also, you know, keep getting involved. I think the youth voice is also something that's been missing in this movement. And, you know, we've been trying to mobilize the youth in our community as well. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, so if you have young folks that want to get involved, you know, uh, tell them to. Um, and then, you know, find allies. And um, overall, you know, I think um, also like when we think about this transition, we also have to think about communities like South Los Angeles. How do they afford, you know, this transition? Um, and so, um, but yeah, I mean, overall, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. And I You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.